0: The day is coming when a man is going to walk this planet unlike any other man who has ever existed. From the standpoint of resistance to God and his plan, he will be the consummate man. He will be Satan's man. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled the will of the Father, so also will the Antichrist perfectly Fulfill the will of Satan. There have been several men in history who had some of the characteristics this man will have. Like Hitler, he will hate and persecute the Jews. Like Nebuchadnezzar, he will rule the world. But there were two other men in history who uniquely pictured for us what the Antichrist will be like. Those two men were Antiochus Epiphanes and Alexander the Great. They, in a unique way, foreshadowed the coming Antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes is a picture of the evil character of the Antichrist, whereas Alexander the Great is a picture of the military and administrative genius of the coming Antichrist. It's interesting that both of those men are prominent in the book of Daniel, and both of them point to the Antichrist, who will be a combination of their lives plus much, much more. The Antichrist will be the ultimate man, but not in a positive way. He will be, number one, an intellectual genius. Daniel 7, 8 says he will have eyes like the eyes of a man. Eyes are used in apocalyptic literature to speak of intelligence he will be an intellectual genius second he will be an outstanding orator daniel 7 8 says that he will have a mouth speaking great things he will have a commanding personality and he'll be an outstanding orator he will be a very charismatic leader and i use that term obviously not in its theological sense Thirdly, he will also be a military genius. Daniel 7.23 says, He shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And after he breaks his covenant with Israel, he will begin to persecute them with all the hatred of Antiochus, Epiphanes, and more. But God will use that persecution to bring the people of Israel to their knees. We have been focusing on these topics in recent days as we have been considering our Lord's Olivet Discourse in Mark chapter 13. Let's turn there together once again to Mark chapter 13. Please follow along as I read verses 14 through 20. This is our Lord Jesus speaking these words recorded by Mark. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter, for in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. As I mentioned a moment ago, this chapter is called the Olivet Discourse. It is called that because Jesus spoke these words when he was seated somewhere on the Mount of Olives. We're told that back in verse 3, where it says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? The disciples wanted to know when Jesus was going to fulfill all things. They probably didn't realize that the coming mentioned in this chapter would be a second coming at some point in the future, but they did did realize that when Jesus appeared in triumph as the king, that would be the end of the present age because that would usher in a new age. So they asked Jesus when this was going to happen. Jesus answered their questions and more in his Olivet Discourse. He told them that before his coming as the king, there would be a time of severe trouble on planet Earth. We often refer to that time as the seven-year tribulation period. Jesus did not tell them that it would be a seven-year period. But there are several passages in Scripture that do tell us that this will be a seven-year period. A major turning point in that period is at the midpoint when the abomination of desolation occurs. Jesus mentioned that event in verse 14. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not. This event will take place at the midpoint of the seven year tribulation period. The abomination of desolation is when the future Antichrist sets himself up in the future temple and declares himself to be God. This is such an important event in the future, such a significant event, that the Apostle Paul also spoke of this over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So let's turn over there together for just a few moments. Turn over past... Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians to 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2. Notice what Paul had to say about this future man and this future event. 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 1. (coughs) Now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin or man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The Apostle Paul wrote this section of his letter to provide relief for the minds of the dear believers in Thessalonica. As indicated in verse 2, these saints were extremely disturbed and distressed because they thought that somehow They had ended up in the day of the Lord's wrath. Paul had taught them back in 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5 that the great gathering together of believers unto Jesus in the air would take place before before the day of the Lord's wrath. But because they were experiencing severe persecution, which they knew would be a part of the day of the Lord, and because someone had evidently told them that Paul had changed his position his opinion on this issue, as indicated in verse 2, they were extremely shaken. Therefore, Paul writes to reassure them that he hasn't changed his position and they were not in the day of the Lord. One of the reasons why they could be confident that they were not in the day of the Lord, says Paul in verse 3, was because the Antichrist had not yet burst forth onto the world scene. But he is coming. And that is the subject which occupies Paul's attention for most of the verses in this second chapter. He says to them in verse 6, And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. The he in this verse where he says you know what is restraining that he may be revealed. The he is a reference to the future Antichrist whom Paul called the man of sin or the man of lawlessness, up in verse 3. This is Satan's man to rule the world. Satan has his man, his plans, and his timetable. He would like to have his man in place now. He would like to be ruling the world now. But God has his own plans and his own timetable, and this man is not going to be allowed onto the scene until God determines the time is right. That's what this verse is saying. The Antichrist will not be revealed, he will not be allowed to step forward until God determines that the time is right. Galatians four four says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. In other words, at the exact right time, God sent forth his son. In the same way, when the fullness of time has come for God to allow the next phase of his perfect plan to unfold, Satan will be allowed to set forth his man, the Antichrist, onto the world scene. Now obviously, he will be alive for years prior to his ascension to prominence because he'll have to be born and grow as a child and grow up to be a man. So he'll be alive for years. But When he signs some kind of treaty or covenant with Israel, as mentioned in Daniel 9, 27, that will really propel him into the limelight or the spotlight. But the world won't really know him as he is. He will step into the world as a broker of peace, but at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week, he will break his covenant with Israel and he will sit in the temple declaring himself to be God. This is what Paul says right here in chapter 2. He will demand that Israel worship him. When they refuse, he will begin to persecute them ruthlessly. So when is all this going to begin to happen? Here's the answer. When God determines it's time. When God has determined that it's time. God isn't going to allow any of this to happen until he has determined that the time is right. It will only be in the fullness of time. I'm reminded of Paul's teaching in Romans eleven twenty five, 25, where he says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, how long, listen, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God is not going to turn back to dealing with Israel in fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9 until until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The Lord's focus right now during this present era is on building His church. And the church is primarily composed of Gentiles. Though there are some Jews who believe in Jesus, they are an extreme minority in the church. The early church was almost exclusively jewish but that has been reversed and the church today is almost exclusively gentile or non-jewish people that's why paul uses the phrase the fullness of the gentiles in in romans 11 the emphasis of god's saving work today is on gentiles but when that fullness has come in then god will determine that the time is right to start the clock on Daniel's 70th week, which focuses God's work on the Jewish people once again, even though Gentiles will be saved during that time. So the clock will start ticking when the Antichrist signs the seven-year covenant with Israel. But Paul says here that won't happen until the restrainer steps back and allows it to happen. So Paul says in verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Did you notice that Paul is now using the pronoun he? In verse 6, he used the phrase, What is restraining? He says, Now you know what is restraining. It was neuter. What? But now it's masculine, he. Why the shift from what to he? You might find it interesting to know that in Jesus' upper room discourse of John 13 through 16, he continually shifted back and forth between the neuter gender and masculine gender as he taught about the Holy Spirit. The word spirit is neuter in Greek, so sometimes... In the upper room discourse, Jesus used a neuter pronoun. But since he was teaching about the Holy Spirit, who is a person, Jesus sometimes used the masculine pronoun, he. It's the same pattern we see right here in 2 Thessalonians 2. First, Paul talks about what. Then he talks about he. That's a strong indication that this restrainer... Is God the Holy Spirit? God the Holy Spirit is strong enough and powerful enough to hold back Satan and his man, the Antichrist. But the time will come when he will be taken out of the way. Now, this doesn't mean that he will be removed from the earth, because that won't happen. Besides, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. You can't really remove him from the earth, he's everywhere. He won't be gone from the earth during the tribulation period because we know from many passages that people will come to faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation, Jews and Gentiles. And the only way people can come to faith in Christ is by the work of the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit will be taken away in this sense, in the sense that his restraining influence will be pulled back or removed. That will allow the Antichrist to carry out Satan's plans. One of Satan's plans is to keep Israel in rejection of their Messiah. That's why Satan prompts the Antichrist to confirm a covenant with Israel. Satan doesn't want Israel to look to Jesus as their Messiah. He wants Israel to look to the false Messiah for security and salvation. Satan wants to defeat the plan of God to save and redeem the Jewish people. God has committed himself to the salvation of the Jewish people. He gave them marvelous gifts in the past in the form of his covenants with them. And he has called them to be his people. And Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Literally, it reads this way. This is fascinating. Listen to the literal uh, rend- um, rendition of Romans eleven twenty nine. 29. For not... Repented of are the grace, gifts, and the calling of God. Not repented of are the grace, gifts, and the calling of God. In other words, God has never repented concerning his choice of Israel. He is just as committed to fulfilling his purposes with them as he has ever been. And you better believe that Satan knows that. That's why he hates Jewish people. And that's why he wants to defeat the plan of God to save the Jewish people. He wants to use every method he can to accomplish that. He wants to completely wipe them out physically, if possible. He used Hitler in that attempt. He wants to completely destroy them spiritually by causing them to trust in men or governments as their savior. Whatever it takes... Satan wants to defeat the plan of God to save the Jewish people. And the future Antichrist will be the most formidable tool he has ever used for that purpose. Will he succeed? You know the answer. Verse 8 says, And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of Of his coming. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The Antichrist won't succeed. Oh, he he will succeed in ruling the world, he will succeed in causing the world to worship him. He will succeed in a lot of ways, but he won't defeat the plan of God. In fact, God will use him. As a pawn for the accomplishing of his own eternal purposes. And once that has taken place, the Antichrist will be destroyed. Notice that Paul, here in this passage, is presenting the career of the Antichrist in a, in a sweeping overview fashion. He doesn't mention the timing of all of these events because he leaves that to our understanding of other passages of Scripture. But he gives the big, full picture. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 3, he mentions the man of sin being revealed. That will take place at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period when he confirms the covenant with Israel. Anyone who knows Daniel 9 at that point will know, hey, this is the guy. Then in verse 4, he mentions the man of sin exalting himself in the temple. That will take place at the middle of the seven-year tribulation period. And then here in verse 8, he mentions the man of sin being consumed. That will take place at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. So Paul covers the entire spectrum of the antichrist's career in just a few short verses. His beginning, his middle key event, and his final destruction. The Antichrist will be the most powerful man who has ever lived. But verse 8 says that he will be consumed without any physical exertion from the Lord no physical exertion whatsoever all it will take is the Lord's breath and his brightness when Jesus comes back to this earth at the end of the seven-year tribulation period the end of Daniel's 70th week he will defeat this man without a struggle the breath of his mouth and the brightness of his coming will do the job Revelation 17, 11 says, The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. He's going to destruction. He's going to damnation. That is why here in verse 3 of this chapter, right at the end, Paul called him the son of perdition. Or depending on your translation, the son of destruction, son of damnation. That phrase means that his whole being is characterized by damnation. That's his destiny. From Satan's point of view, this man will be born with a view to rule the world. But from God's point of view, he will be born with a view to be destroyed and damned. God will allow the Antichrist to carry out his diabolical purposes... But God will use those events to accomplish His purposes. Now, all of this is a part of and behind our text in Mark chapter 13. So let's go back to our text there in Mark 13, where Jesus teaches on some of these very same issues and topics. Here in verses 14 through 20, Jesus warns that the Jewish people are going to be the target of the Antichrist's wrath during the last days. Therefore, in verse 14, Jesus told them that when they see the abomination of desolation take place in the temple, flee, Jesus said. Run. Go. In fact, he says in verse 15, let him who is on the housetop, not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of the house. In other words, this is going to be so severe and so serious that the Jewish people, especially those in Judea, down in southern Israel, near the, or around the city of Jerusalem, those who live there shouldn't even take the time to gather their belongings to flee. Jesus says, just get out of there as quickly as you can. Verse 16, and to emphasize the point further, let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. So you're working out in the field, and you hear, you know, either on your cell phone or some kind of announcement on radio. You're you're a Jewish person in Judea. You're out in the field, and you hear some event has just taken place in Jerusalem that, that, that the, whatever he will be called, not probably by the title Antichrist, but this world leader has set himself up in the temple, declaring himself to be God. You hear that. You're out in the field. You don't even go to your house, Jesus said. Don't even go back to your house to get anything. Flee from the field. When the abomination of desolation takes place, time is of the essence. The Jewish people are quickly, immediately going to become the focus of the Antichrist's wrath and fury. So Jesus says, go. Flee. Leave. Verse 17, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies In those days, obviously, those conditions would make it difficult to flee in haste. If you're eight months pregnant, nine months pregnant, you can't move very quickly. Or if you're trying, you have a a little one who's so little that they're still nursing. So, those conditions would make it difficult to flee in haste, as well as the specifics mentioned in the next verse, verse 18 and pray that your flight may not be in winter. Matthew's account adds one other aspect to this verse because it says, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Mark, since he's not writing to a Jewish audience, but a Roman audience, doesn't include that. Matthew, because he is writing to a Jewish audience, puts that one in there. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Both of those situations would slow down travel for the Jewish people. The winter is the rainy season in Israel. And the Sabbath day, which is Saturday, is a day when many services, such as buses and trains and planes, are curtailed. So, if the abomination of desolation takes place in the winter, or if it takes place on the Sabbath day, on Saturday, then that will really slow things down for the Jewish people who are attempting to flee and get out of Israel. But regardless of the conditions or circumstances, one thing is certain. And that is the fact that the Jewish people need to do everything they can as soon as they can to escape the Antichrist's attempts to annihilate them because that is exactly what he's going to try to do. He is going to try to annihilate them. And in fact, Jesus says in verse 19, For in those days... There will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. That is an astounding statement when you stop to realize just how much tribulation the Jewish people have experienced down through the centuries. They have experienced so much tribulation and persecution simply because they are Jewish. The most notable example, of course, is the Holocaust, but there are many others if you know your history, if you know world history. Yet Jesus says here in this verse that what they will face in the future will exceed all that they have experienced in the past. In Matthew's account, he calls it great Tribulation. That's the specific term he uses. That is the phrase we often use to distinguish the second half of the seven year tribulation period. The whole time will be a time of tribulation in various ways, but the last half will be the great tribulation. If you want to know why it's called that, all you have to do is read Revelation chapter 6 through 18. Those chapters record all the cataclysmic events that will be taking place on planet Earth in addition to the persecution that will be directed at the Jewish people. And the primary emphasis of Jesus' words here is on the persecution that the Jewish people will experience. No wonder Jeremiah 30, verse 7, refers to it as the time of Jacob's trouble. And in fact, just prior to that statement, Jeremiah says, I'm just paraphrasing here, why is every man walking around with his arms across his loins? Has a man ever given birth to a child or been in labor? No. Then why is that going on? And he says, alas, it's a time of trouble, a time of distress, the time of Jacob's trouble. What's another name for Jacob? Obviously, Israel. So it will be a time of Israel's trouble. And Jesus says in verse 20, And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. In other words, God will not let this persecution go on indefinitely. He will restrict it. The Antichrist will only be allowed to carry out his heinous intentions for the final three and a half years of the tribulation period then jesus will return to stop the bloodbath and will execute his own judgment the elect here in this verse is a reference it's even clearer from matthew's account but it's clear that the elect in this verse is a reference to the jewish people they were the ones chosen elected in the book of genesis to be the people in whom and through whom God worked to bless the world. They have blessed the world beyond description because they are the ones God used to give us his word and his son. The scriptures came through the Jewish people and the Lord Jesus came through the Jewish people. And because God chose them, he gave them unconditional promises that are still going to be fulfilled in the future. They are going to receive the glorious kingdom that was promised to them throughout Hebrew Scripture. So that raises a question when we read what Jesus says here in this passage. If all of this is true, if God is committed to the Jewish people, and he's committed to redeem them and save them and committed to giving them a kingdom, why, why is the Lord going to allow all of this to happen? Why is the Lord going to allow all of this to take place? And the answer is this. He is going to allow his chosen people to experience such atrocities because that is what it will take to finally bring about their salvation. Their own prophets often refer to them as a stubborn and stiff-necked people. They won't. I mean, I know many of you have Jewish friends. You know this. This is not anti-Semitism. This is just fact. They won't repent of their ways, and they won't embrace Jesus as their Messiah. The vast majority do not. There are a few. So God will allow all of this to take place, to bring them to the point where they will finally look to Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah. As we turn to Revelation 19, we see how all of this is going to end. Turn over with me to Revelation chapter 19. John was privileged to see in advance the culmination of this future seven-year time period and how it is all going to end and he recorded it beginning here in verse 11 of Revelation 19. He says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Notice the reason why he's coming back. He came the first time as a meek lamb to redeem, he's coming the second time as a ferocious lion to judge and make war. That's the way he's pictured here in the book of Revelation. All you have to do is go back to chapter 5, and John sees this vision of the Lord Jesus. And at first he looks like a lamb, then he looks like a lion, or maybe a lion, then a lamb. Well, how can he be both? Well, because it's picturing both of his comings. The first coming, he came as a lamb, gentle, meek. The second coming, he will come as a lion, the king of beasts, to judge, make war, rule, and reign. And that's what this verse says. When he comes back, he's coming back to judge and make war. The book of Revelation often presents to us a picture of Jesus that we're not all that comfortable with and all that familiar with. Because we're so used to the Jesus in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The one who said of himself, Come unto me, all you labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I am meek, lowly, and heart. I'm gentle. But he's not gentle when he comes back. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is Jesus one. Revelation is Jesus two. It's the same Jesus, but it's just His other aspect, the other aspect of his work as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Verse 12 says, His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. This robe dipped in blood could be a reference to the blood that he shed, his own blood, or it could be a reference to the blood he will shed when he comes back in judgment. Because people of the world are pictured as being thrown into a huge judgment vat and Jesus tramples them in the judgment vat and splatters their blood on his garment. Again, I say it's not the picture of Jesus that we're most familiar with or most comfortable with. But he has this robe dipped in blood. Verse 14, The armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. If we had the time, we could go back to chapters 2 and 3 to see where this is the very thing promised to the churches. So, this, this is a reference to the church. The armies in heaven, the, the church is going to follow him clothed in fine linen. Not that he'll need our help, that becomes clear in a moment, but we get to come with him, come back in victory. Verse 15 Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. So, you see, that's why he's coming back to strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He will not tolerate any rebellion. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses. And those who sit on them in the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. So all the birds are invited to this huge supper. They'll have no trouble finding the place, by the way. I find it interesting that in several of my trips to Israel and talking with pilots who fly in and out of Israel, they have told me that the number one problem they deal with in trying to land in Israel and go out of Israel is all the birds. Because you see, if you're familiar with the geography, Israel is in a location where to the west is the Mediterranean Sea and to the east is desert, barren desert. So when birds from Europe migrate to Africa in the south, they go right over the land of Israel. There are always birds going back and forth over the land of Israel. And here they are invited to come to this great supper. And then verse 19 says, I saw the beast the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. This beast in, the ver- in this verse is the Antichrist himself. We know that because back in chapter 13, he was referred to as the beast. We saw that last week when we looked at Revelation 13. So this is the Antichrist at the end of Daniel's 70th week, at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. He has been ruling the world with such autonomy that his egomania has reached the point that he actually thinks that he and his armies can, can defeat Jesus when he comes back. Notice they are gathered together to make war with Jesus, if you can imagine it. Most people probably assume, and it's a wrong assumption, that the Battle of Armageddon is all these armies gathering together to war against one another. That's not the Battle of Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon is all these armies gathered together to make war against Jesus. They're not all fighting each other. They're gathered together because they know that coming at the end of this, all of these events, that he comes to the land of Israel. So they all gather in the land of Israel and they say, we will stop him from coming back. All these Believers who are alive on planet earth are saying Jesus is coming back. He's coming back as king. He's coming back to set up his kingdom. So the beast pulls all his armies to Israel to say we'll stop him. It's just utter foolishness. But they're gathered together to make war with Jesus. But as Paul said in 2 Thessalonians, it will only take the Lord's breath and his brightness to destroy this man. Verse 20, notice the description and the lack of struggle in this verse. Then the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. The son of perdition will go to his proper place of destiny. He will go where he belongs to the lake of fire. And by the way, these are the first two people in the lake of fire or Gehenna or hell. People who die today without Christ do not go to hell. They go to Hades. It's a place of judgment. It's a place of torment. It's not hell. It's not the lake of fire. No one is in hell today. No one. The first two people who will be in hell will be the Antichrist and the false prophet as described here. They will be the first. Now, eventually, all unbelievers will be cast into hell. But unbelievers who die today don't go to hell. They go to Hades. But all will eventually end up there. But the first two are the beast and the false prophet. He will go to where he belongs, to the lake of fire. It's the same place you will eventually end up if you die in rebellion against God and Christ. Back in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul said the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, there is a spirit of lawlessness or rebellion against God that is already prevalent in the lives of people in our world today. Many people hate God. Many people resist God. They they are in rebellion against God. And all of this will reach its climax in Satan's man, the Antichrist. So where do you stand today? Are you in rebellion against God? If you die in that condition, listen, you will spend eternity in the same place where the Antichrist will spend eternity. Let go of your rebellion and turn to Christ today. Let's bow together in prayer. As we close our service this morning, In our time together, let me remind you once again, if you die in rebellion against God, if you die and you're not right with Jesus Christ, you will end up spending eternity in the same place where the Antichrist will spend eternity. It's not a threat. It's a warning. It's a statement of fact. So I urge you to let go of whatever is holding you back. And willingly surrender to Jesus Christ as your king. He's coming back someday as king of kings and lord of lords. You need to be right with him. You need to have him as your king. And Father, that is our prayer for anyone hearing these words right now who has not surrendered to your son Jesus as king. May your Holy Spirit use the truth of your word and what you have revealed to us about the future to be a warning, to bring conviction so that this would be the day that man or woman turns to Jesus Christ in faith to receive him as King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, we pray as Jesus taught us to pray when he said, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we long for that day, not merely for our sake, but for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.